A very warm welcome to our Leavers service. We have come together in the name of Christ to offer our praise and thanksgiving, to hear and receive God's holy word, to pray for the needs of the world and to seek the forgiveness of our sins, that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may give ourselves to the service of God. God's word assures us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed. Through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry 
and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. So may Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first reading is taken from the book of Genesis. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Here ends the reading.
The second reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So he took the talent from him and gave it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here ends the reading.
Our guest speaker for today, Mr Walters, had asked for the primary school classic when a knight won his spurs to be sung. It sadly not proved possible to record this at short notice, so here it is in lyrical form nevertheless as a short poem. When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old, he was gentle and brave, he was gallant and bold. With a shield on his arm and a lance in his hand, for God and for valour, he rode through the land. No charger have I, and no sword by my side, yet still to adventure and battle I ride. Though back into storyland giants have fled, and the knights are no more, and the dragons are dead. Let faith be my shield, and let joy be my steed, against the dragons of anger, the ogres of greed. And let me set free with the sword of my youth, from the castle of darkness, the power of the truth. The last six months in the world of schools and education have been a fully surreal experience, nested of course within the sort of 18 months that would make anybody's toes curl. There have been extraordinary pressures placed on pupils and teachers, and many of the usual outlets for accruing stresses and anxieties have been cut off by the various restrictions and periods of lockdown. In the context of all this then, you could forgive me for having gone very slightly insane. This insanity reached its zenith, I think, on the 19th of April. At that time, the Prime Minister, the Secretary of State for Education, Ofqual, the Joint Council for Qualifications, various examination boards, news outlets, celebrities, distant cousins and their pets were pelting schools with voluminous and contradictory information about the mechanism by which we ought to go about awarding your grades this year. I had gone to bed on that Monday evening with my spinning head entirely implicated by an episode of Australian Survivor, and when sleep eventually overpowered my conscious mind, I dreamed that our esteemed education secretary had announced that A-level grades would be determined by the ability of our upper sixth pupils to cook and present a perfect goat's cheese tart. We can take a number of things away from this bizarre vision. A. My decision to go vegetarian, or rather my wife's decision for me to go vegetarian, is clearly going to require therapy in later life. B. The fact that my subconscious willingly accepted this as a plausible edict from the government indicates the sheer levels of lunacy we've been experiencing since March 2020. Indeed, when I woke up in an indecorous tangle of bedsheets, my wife blearily demanding what nightmare had roused me, I declared with delighted enthusiasm that I thought the whole process should be possible if we baked some of them in the kilns in the art block. And C. It is clear that I need to, as they say, get out more. Dreams, then, are peculiar things. They are the bit of scrap paper that you don't include with the final examination paper, upon which you've scratched out incoherent bits of working you'd really rather nobody saw. In the land of dreams, time and emotion flow very differently, and we often find ourselves in situations with no rational explanation of how we got there, and yet we accept them all the same. On a disturbing number of occasions, I arrive in my dream, seemingly having already committed a murder and buried the body, and then spend what feels like hours of fitful self-chastisement as I try to work out why the devil I would have done such a thing in the first place. Then there are those rare and extraordinary dreams in which you are perfectly and inexplicably happy. But when you wake up in the unduly positive mood, you can't for the life of you recall why. It has been very nearly five years since I joined Shrewsbury School, and for many of you listening, exactly the same is true. Whether you've been here for five years or four or two, I'm sure that you will agree with me that the experience has had a dreamlike quality to it. We've all experienced that curious relativity of time, that performance in the school musical, for example, which seemed to be over in a flash, or running the tux, which seemed to take, and possibly did take in some cases, hours. 
We've all also found ourselves in situations that we can't quite rationally explain. How was it exactly that I ended up perched in the back of a tiny trailer with Mr. Percival providing commentary for the house music? Or indeed, due to a timetabling quirk for which I hold Dr. Oakley entirely responsible, delivering that particular PSD lesson, which was, as a handful of you may recall, entirely out of my comfort zone. But try as you might, and will, to deny it, there is something about this place, or rather about this community, and here I include you, your teachers, your parents, and that vast wider network of Salopians who have gone before you, something that makes us happy. Why was it that during two periods of lockdown, despite the best efforts of every teacher to deliver a really powerful online provision, and despite all of the innovation of Mr Middleton and his team of co-curricular powerhouses, that the only question on the lips of any of us was, when can we go back and be together again? Schools have a dreamlike quality. Your youthful detailed memories at present will recall things from the last five years that I will already have forgotten, and the sad truth of the matter is that by 2040 you'll be meeting up with groups of friends and trying desperately to piece together names and places from your time at Shrewsbury as the years concertina down into an imperfect and wonderfully airbrushed highlights reel. In a sense, however, this doesn't matter. Because, like dreams, schools aren't actually real. Now, this is, I know, a peculiar thing to say, especially as I'm standing in a school at present, delivering this to people who have five years of shared experience, experience in which I too have shared. But I'm not claiming that schools don't exist, only that they're not real. All schools like this one attempt to be a mini-utopia. Communities that come as near to perfection as possible in their aims, their operation, and the qualities of those who inhabit them. The intention in the plethora of rules by which you have had to abide, and of the code of values which dictates the decisions that we make with and for you, is that you should experience, as closely as is possible, the best way of living life and interacting with others. Of course, there is no helpful Wikipedia definition to tell us exactly what that is, and it is for this reason that every school is different. Nobody is right and nobody is wrong, much as it may be fun to pick holes in the philosophies of our local rivals. The Greek root of the word utopia, and here comes the classical reference, you'd have been disappointed if I didn't work it in somewhere, is utopos, meaning no place or nowhere. And Sir Thomas More chose it deliberately to indicate that the sort of ideas he was espousing about perfect, idealised societies did not belong anywhere outside of philosophical ponderings and fantasy. The real world is not as well regulated as Shrewsbury School. This place is a glittering junction box of opportunity populated by people who think broadly in a very similar way and who will, when push comes to shove, do the right thing for their friends themselves and their community. The world is not the same. If your time at Shrewsbury has been a dream, you are, I'm afraid, about to awake. But it would be a, catast a catastrophic mistake to assume, therefore, that the dream has been pointless and meaningless. You must not reduce your Salopian experience to three or four letter grades in August and the occasional teary, sentimental reminiscence. The thing that really matters about dreams is how we choose to act on them. The Bible is replete with stories of divinely inspired dreams and the responses of those who dream them. Jacob's vision of a ladder going to heaven, Jonah's instruction to go to Nineveh, and so on and so forth. Being something of a musical theatre buff, however, it would not surprise any of you that the story I've alighted on today is that of Joseph. Now, Joseph, of course, as well as having a particularly lurid coat, had many, many dreams. He's less than diplomatic in sharing those with his brothers, and this leads to an all-expenses-paid trip to Egypt, where, following his misreading of a number of signals from the wife of Potiphar, he lands up in prison. 
From this point, he moves from dreamer to dream interpreter. Having reliably predicted the release of one prisoner and the execution of another, he was awarded the equivalent of a prison floriat, and presumably his name made it into the prison e-newsletter and was plastered all over the ancient equivalent of Twitter. Thus, when Pharaoh had that extraordinary night's sleep, populated by ears of corn and some supersized cows, a dream that makes my goat's cheese tart look positively ordinary by comparison, Joseph was the only man for the job. Joseph, of course, as we well know, interprets the dream to indicate a grim outlook for Egypt's agricultural minister. Seven years of bumper crops are on their way, followed by seven years of famine. But that's where Joseph's superpower stops. He's done his bit. He's explained what the dream means. Yet the most impressive thing about Joseph is not the decoding of the poetic imagery. It's what he goes on to say. I chose the reading this morning for a reason. The important thing in the story of Joseph is neither the dreams he dreams nor the dreams he interprets. It's what he chooses to do about it. Instead of returning to his cell, instead of suggesting Pharaoh might consider eating less cheese just before bedtime, Joseph takes the fantasy and makes it into something practical. He uses the gift he has been given to support his own natural talents and intellect. The dream and the wisdom to interpret it may have come from God, but the action Joseph takes is entirely his own. Store up the surplus crops, come up with a rationing system for the years of famine. The ethereal poetic concept is now a pragmatic concrete strategy. As well as requesting this reading from Genesis, I also asked for the choir to sing that school-leaving classic, When a Knight Won His Spurs. Perversely enough, I asked them to sing this song not because I like it, but rather because I hate it, or rather I did. This hymn was sung routinely at the sending out service at the first school I attended as a child. I dreaded it every year, not because it's particularly disharmonic or full of offensive lyrics, although if you do give the words more than a passing glance, you will see vestigial colonialism in there, not to mention a good dollop of chauvinism, but rather because we were only ever allowed to sing the first two verses. The headmistress of this particular school was a peculiar beast who confessed on more than one occasion that she didn't really like children. Assemblies were thoroughly bizarre, and she had an interesting habit of altering or blotting out particular words that she found offensive from school songs. Thus, in our version of The Lord of the Dance, when we got to I danced on a Friday when the sky turned black, it's hard to dance with the devil on your back, we were required to sing It's hard to dance with a monkey on your back, which, while undeniably true, is probably theologically less secure. At the annual leavers service then, when it was traditional for us to sing When a Knight Won His Spurs, we were limited to the first two verses only. This meant that we ended on the exceedingly downbeat line, The Dragons Are Dead. Now, this was particularly traumatising for me for two reasons. The first was that as a slightly awkward sort of a child, I had in fact taken to bringing in my own cuddly dragon toy for the first year of school. You would have think this, thought this would have led to my having been picked on. And you would have been correct. The nominated school bully waited for me just inside the school gates one morning, grabbed the toy from me and tore it to pieces in front of my face. This was, of course, enough to make me slightly squeamish about singing this particular line. But there was also something else. The overriding message of this song, of course, if you're insane enough to plunge into the depths of stanza three, is that while ogres and giants and dragons and castles are long gone, along with spear-touting knights in slick suits of armour, the metaphorical human monsters of anger and greed still exist holding human virtue captive in a castle of darkness. It is our duty, the hymn writer argues, to liberate these virtues with the sword of truth. For me, though, as a child, reaching the end of the second verse only, I can remember being overcome by an immense sense of sadness at the death of the dragons, not only in a literal sense, but because of what it represented in my mind about the power of imagination. We are, all of us, no more than bundles of chemicals and forces operating in an extraordinary fashion. Everything we accomplish, everything we build, is the product of a vibrant imagination. 
It is imagination that drives us to advance. It is imagination that constructs the dream of a world where there is equality, where there is parity of resource and opportunity, where people can live without fear. It is easy, in our modern context, so driven by the quantifiable precision of science, to see no place for imagination. I say this, of course, not to diminish the extraordinary accomplishments of science, and the fact that the vaccination rollout is happening at all is a very real testament to women and men working in that very field. But I want to make the point that science without imagination loses its purpose. The dragons are very much still alive. Selfishness, corruption, hunger, hate ravage the planet with far more destructive power than any winged lizard of medieval legend. But it's our imagination that allows us to work together, to understand each other, and to develop sets of rules and behaviours that will ultimately pin their wings. Our second reading is a well-known one, and I hope you'll forgive me the cliché. But at this vitally important moment in your young lives, the moment at which you are about to wake up, I felt it was important to remind you that you have two very clear options ahead. You can choose to allow this dream that has been Shrewsbury to pass into memory. You can choose to recall only sentiment and anecdote and bury it deep down to keep it safe, fossilised and isolated in the mind. Or you can choose to be like the other servants, or indeed Joseph. You can choose to see the dream for something more as a fingerpost pointing the way to a different way of viewing the world. You can choose to combine all of the exceptional experiences you've garnered here and draw them forward into a life that will effervesce with excitement and improvement and impact. Depart from Shrewsbury School, prepared to see the goodness and beauty in everything, but unabashed in the face of darkness. So please don't roll over and go back to sleep. Do better than my generation. Keep your minds dynamic and vibrant. And remember that the dragons are every bit as alive as your capacity to imagine them. Let us pray. Christ, teacher and Lord, as we end our time here, bless all at this school with the grace you so generously provide. We give thanks for the students, for our housemates, our teammates, our friends, for those who have studied with us and for those whose humour has brightened the dullest hour. We thank you for our teachers and leaders, our house parents, our matrons, for the administrators, the ground staff, the cleaners and the caterers, and all who have contributed to this time of nurturing and growth. We affirm all the positive moments of insight, of the excitement of learning, of accomplishment, of creativity, of laughter, of a sense of community. We recognise the times of struggle, of difficult work, of misunderstanding, even of failure. We give these to you for transformation so that they can become seeds that will find fertile soil. As we leave for the summer and for pastures new, may we take with us the knowledge that you will keep us in your embrace so that we may rest and be restored, and so that we can continue in the ongoing discovery of your love. In Jesus' name, Amen.
We come to our commissioning prayer. And I guess if we're going to commission you for action, it's probably quite important that you stand at the moment. So even if you feel a bit of a wally having to actually stand up whilst listening to something on a podcast, nevertheless, I'd encourage you to do so and be ready to go. Let's pray. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen.